everybody. Welcome to Wednesday Night's Narrative Live. It's good to be with you tonight. Very pleased to have Brandon Wolf with us tonight. Brandon is well known to many viewers of MSNBC, which I first found him on. But I also have recently discovered him on Twitter, where he posted a really interesting thread, which we'll get to in just a second. But Brandon, you're mostly known, which is kind of a difficult thing to be known for, for being a, a survivor of the Pulse nightclub attack uh, in 2012. But you've since become quite an advocate for all sorts of things related to LGBTQ rights and specifically around this new Don't Say Gay bill. So uh, we'll be talking a lot about that coming up, but I just want to say good evening. And uh, why don't you tell us just one line about why people should be worried about the Don't Say Gay bill? Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to our conversation. And the truth is, if folks don't want to see a national Don't Say Gay movement, if folks want to keep the country moving forward instead of pulling us back into the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, uh, then we've got to care about what's happening here in the state of Florida, what's beginning to metastasize around the country. And I'm looking forward to sharing with folks how they can get engaged. I'm really excited about that. We'll be doing that right after we get to the starting block. Kicking off the starting block tonight. Three, two, one. Peter Navarro, Dan Scavino, Vladimir Putin, and Konstantin Malofiev. And we begin in the House of Representatives, where there is breaking news tonight. Trump advises Peter Navarro and Dan Scavino have been held in contempt of Congress. That's because they refused to comply with the committee investigating January 6th. That same committee has just received a cache of emails belonging to Donald Trump's lawyer, John Eastman. That's according to federal documents filed on Tuesday. The 101 emails were released to the committee after Judge David Carter ruled in federal court in California last week that Eastman had not made sufficient claim to client attorney privilege. The cache of documents sent between the 4th and 7th of January contains extensive communications between Eastman and others about plans to obstruct the certification of Joe Biden's victory in the 2020 presidential elections. The U.S. has stopped the Russian government from paying holders of its sovereign debt more than $600 million from reserves held in U.S. banks. This is a very significant move that could place the entire Russian state in default, basically unable to pay its bills. That could trigger an entire collapse of the economy. Um, Treasury has allowed the Russian government to make payments up until now on dollar-denominated sovereign debt on a case-by-case basis. But that changed on Monday when Moscow's access to the frozen funds was cut. The U.S. has also sanctioned Russia's largest financial institution, Spurbank, and largest private bank, Alpha Bank. Also, Putin's children and Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov's wife and daughter and members of Russia's Security Council. And to add to the already dizzying array of sanctions, a ban on any new investment in Russia by U.S. persons wherever they're located was also signed into law by Joe Biden today. That's incredible stuff. And the third story on our list today also involves Russia and sanctions. And this one involves Konstantin Milofiev. Also today, the DOJ unsealed an indictment of Putin oligarch Konstantin Malofiev. Malofiev skirted sanctions by hiring Sean Hannity's ex-producer, get that, Sean Hannity's ex-producer Jack Hannick was hired by this guy, uh, Konstantin uh, Malofiev, to run a television network in Russia, which is completely far-right and extremely orthodox. Now, Hannick and Malofiev also apparently, according to this indictment, conspired to pay $10 million to buy a TV network in Bulgaria. They also apparently bought one in Greece. And if you've seen our map of where we think Russia is pretending to build its empire, you can sort of see why they'll want a influence machine in Bulgaria and Greece. 
Lafayette is also very well known to narrative audiences for running influence operations against the United States. He's also done that, of course, in Ukraine. Next, a version of Florida's Don't Say Gay Bill becomes law in Ohio, and it's much more than just a preschool bill. It's another sign the GOP can't quit Vladimir Putin. We'll be joined by Pulse nightclub survivor Brandon Wolf. That's right after this break. Hey, everybody, it's Zev. It seems every day there's a new health threat. One of the best ways to reclaim your immune system is, of course, eating healthy. Your mom was absolutely right. But how do you get all the vitamins and nutrients you need in a convenient, affordable way? That's really tough. That's why I'm currently doing a 30-day self-imposed Athletic Greens Challenge. The plan is simple. See if I can take the AG1 supplement throughout April every single day and track any increases in energy levels, overall well-being, and boost to my immune system. Today is day five. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. And I have to tell you, this actually tastes pretty good, this green drink. Most people don't like the taste of green drinks. This one is a pretty tasty fairly light and refreshing, almost tropical uh, flavor to it. So it doesn't matter what time of day you take it as well. It'll give you a noticeable boost to your energy no matter when you take it. So it's really, really helpful. AG1 is engineered to provide all the right nutrients at just the right time. Whether you want increased energy or improved muscle recovery, they've got it covered. And because they care about your wallet too, AG1 will only cost you around three bucks a day, which is pretty good considering all the nutrients you get. And there are no hidden fees. To make it easy, and because we love you, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs. That's five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash narrative, the way we spell narrative, N-A-R-A-T-I-V. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash narrative, N-A-R-A-T-I-V, to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And we're back now with Brandon Wolf. Um, Brandon, you know, we've been following the events in Florida a lot lately because DeSantis is such a wild card and he's doing such interesting and off the wall legislation. And I think a lot of people consider this don't say Gable in that category. It's just one of these other crazy things DeSantis is doing. But of course, it's much more than that. It seems to be the start of a massive attempt by the GOP to create a wedge issue into the next elections, which will help them get elected, at least to control the House of Representatives. So it's at its core, maybe to some people could sound like a reasonable bit of legislation who doesn't think that young kids shouldn't be exposed to any sexual education. But when you really dig into it, it's nothing like that. It's really a very highly discriminatory bill. And what you posted the other day on Twitter was really, really struck me as being important for people to understand. And you told us a little bit about your coming out story. And I wonder if you can start there and talk a little bit about how you came out and then explain to everyone why that would impact uh, on the Don't Say Gay Bill. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, th- and thank you. It was a vulnerable moment for me. I haven't shared that story a lot with folks, but I felt it was important. Uh, what I shared is that when I was 17 years old, uh, there was a local mom in town. I lost my mom, unfortunately, when I was in the sixth grade. Uh, And so obviously we had babysitters and folks in the community who took care of us as young kids. One of those moms got wind that I had a boyfriend at school and she took it upon herself to tell everyone uh, who would listen to her. She told folks in my church, she told the parents of my classmates, anyone who would listen to her, she shouted about, you know, this new phenomenon that was happening in school. And she insisted that who I was to my core was a threat to the people around me. She suggested that me simply being queer, me being a gay man, 
meant that somehow other people in the school would become gay, that I was preying on my classmates and my peers. Mm -hmm. Uh, People were pulled from classes with me. Some didn't show up to after school practice anymore. And the reason that I shared that and the reason that it's, I think, relevant to the conversation we're having today is that that same rhetoric is now being weaponized in 2022 by the governor of the third largest state in the union to try to bully people into submission on this bill. There's an insinuation first made by the governor's office, his spokeswoman, and now being parroted on every right-wing outlet in the country that LGBTQ people and anyone who opposes the erasure of LGBTQ people from classrooms is complicit in pedophilia, that we are all groomers, you look at you know the comment section on anyone's post these days, and there's a lot of accusations and insinuations that people who don't support this bill are groomers or pedophiles. That was the same rhetoric that was wielded against me at age 17 to try to erase me from my classrooms, to remove me from my community, to isolate me, dehumanize me, and justify discrimination against me. And unfortunately, it's being wielded against people right now. I had hoped that we'd moved beyond that dark period in our own history, but it appears that Governor DeSantis and others are dredging up this sort of age-old bigotry to use as a weapon against not just people like me who are grown and can sort of take it, but it's happening to young kids too. There's a 17-year-old kid here in Central Florida who can't post anything without a whole host of faceless Twitter trolls accusing them of being a pedophile or of grooming their classmates. It's really sickening. It's disturbing. And once again, it's age-old bigotry that's designed to dehumanize people and justify discrimination against them. It really is the kind of stuff we haven't seen since, you know, the Oscar Wilde days. I mean, this is kind of, we haven't thought about homosexuality in that criminal sense in century or maybe or maybe longer. And so now suddenly comes DeSantis with this bill and basically recriminalizing the idea of homosexuality, at least in the public sense. I mean, there's no crimes attached to it, but there's but there are crimes attached to it because there will be fines levied, I guess. How does the don't say gay bill work? I mean, what if if you contravene it? What if a teacher does decide she wants to teach or he wants to teach his class about gender identity or something at at an age when they're supposedly not allowed to learn this. What happens in that bill? Well, let me paint a really clear picture for you of a, a possible outcome of the don't say gay law. Let's say a second grader comes to school with their family tree project. That's a required assignment in Florida public schools. And they've drawn their family on this, you know, little cartoon tree. They get up in front of the class and they decide to present their family. And they say, on this branch, I have my two moms. Another kid in the classroom says, well, that's weird. You can't have two moms. Where's your dad? And a teacher says families with two moms are just as much a family as anyone else's. If that second kid goes home and tells their parents who become enraged that this teacher has now instructed the class on sexual orientation, they can sue the school district for allowing it, which means that these cash-strapped school districts who already don't have the resources to staff schools, to keep paper on the printer shelves, to keep books Uh, there for kids to read who already desperately need more funding and more resources, those cash-strapped school districts will now face a lawsuit. And by the way, there is no mechanism by which that school district can recoup any of their legal fees, even if that lawsuit turns out to be frivolous. And so the question becomes, well, what do those school districts do 
ahead of time in order to stop themselves from being in that very difficult situation. And the answer is there's a chilling effect that's already happening across the state of Florida. There are books being ripped from shelves. There are rainbow safe space stickers being peeled off of windows. There are principals telling teachers not to talk about LGBTQ people at all because they simply don't want to risk finding out just how far the vague language of this bill goes. It's really quite terrifying. And it's a Frankenstein's monster of what we saw in Texas around the abortion law, which is this deputizing of people in the community to sue anyone mm-hmm. and everyone for things that they're offended by. That's such a good point you make about the Texas law. But before we go there, you started off that description of what might happen with this two moms or two dads you know, situation. What they seem to have done with this bill is taken a situation where you are talking about a family unit, which happens to have different gender makeups or any other kind of makeup, because that's just how America is, and confusing that in the public's mind with sexuality. Because we're not talking right. to these preschoolers about sexuality when you're talking about their two moms. You're just talking about them having two moms because that's what they know. And that's a really important distinction and a blurring of the lines that is very insidious by uh, DeSantis and the GOP on these efforts. Yeah, it is. It, there is this sort of conflation of the existence of different kinds of families, different kinds of people, and sex education. And it's really important to point out that this is very specifically not a bill about sex education, and it's intentionally not a bill about sex education. How do I know that? Because we led efforts to make it a bill about sex education. We helped to lead amendments that were filed in both the House and the Senate by both Democrats and Republicans to try to clarify that this is not a bill aimed at LGBTQ people, but rather a bill designed to further limit or restrict conversations about sex education with very young children. And guess who are the ones who killed those amendments? Republican lawmakers. Mm. And why did they do that? They said because it would strip it of its most important element, Mm. which is this idea that we can't talk about sexual orientation or gender identity in any form. In fact, it was the Senate sponsor, the guy who filed it on that side, who on the floor of the Senate said he was drawn to this bill because he's deeply concerned about how many young people feel comfortable coming out of the closet and wanted to find a way to put a stop to it. I saw that clip on your Instagram. It is really interesting. And this guy has a basic idea, theory, that there are more people coming out of the closet or more people transitioning into, um, you know, transsexual identities, um, transgender identities, I'm sorry. But they're doing so only because it's a kind of a fad or they're being influenced by their education or by their colleagues or a student class. I mean, it's, it's sort of like that it's catchy, that this idea of being gay is catchy, which we know, of course, is untrue. And in fact, what may be more true than what the senator is believing is that there are just a lot of people who have been in the closet over the years and not been able or enabled to come out of the closet as, as you were and I was, that they are now in a situation where they are able to because of this the freely discussed conversations about gender identity in schools. So this guy's theory is complete bullshit. You know, there's no way that educating kids about having two dads or two moms is going to make them gay. I mean, there's just not, there's no evidence to suggest any of that at all. In fact, there's evidence to the opposite. Keep Mm -hmm. in mind that we live in a heteronormative, cis-normative society. We see heterosexual people everywhere, right? On magazine covers, on television shows. I mean, you know, there's this right-wing outrage at Disney right now about the potential that there will be queer characters in their content. But essentially, you know, probably at least half of Disney's cartoon content 
is about heterosexual relationships. It's about, you know, a princess falls in love with a prince or something almost along those all of lines. Yeah. Almost all of it. And at the same time, although we've been forced to view this content forever, we've been forced to read books about kings and queens, moms and dads, princes and princesses since the dawn of time, I still turned out really gay. And so did a lot of people. <laughs> and so the truth is that there is this sort of age old bigoted insinuation that to be LGBTQ is contagious, mm. that somehow us being around others means that we're going to pass on our identities to someone else. When in truth, all it is, is that visibility of us, that us being present in society and accepted and affirmed as a normal, healthy part of that society gives people permission to be themselves. Your kids are not being turned gay or trans because there are gay or trans people in their lives. They just are gay or trans, and they're feeling comfortable being themselves because they see a world that dares to affirm and celebrate them. That's a really good point you're making there. You know, I grew up in South Africa where the homosexuality was completely illegal. The idea of it was completely banned. I, I'm obviously aging myself. I'm older than you by a lot. So <laughs> I can tell you, but you know, the idea there is that I, I still, even though it was illegal, turned out gay. And there was no notion of any homosexuality in our society at all. No one talked about it. There was no news about it. There was no, you know, the, maybe a little bit in the Encyclopedia Britannica that I looked up was all I knew about when I turned gay. So there's a situation that there's, you know, th this idea of putting this genie back in the bottle is really ludicrous. You can't sort of, you can't do that. We've already created a generation almost of people who view themselves very differently um, who have very different views on gender identity and much more fluid ideas about how gender identity works. And you can't put that back in the bottle. That's right. And I do think that's why you're seeing some of this really insidious and grotesque reversal back to the kind of bigotry that we saw in the 1970s and 80s, which is you know, essentially calling anyone who's LGBTQ a pedophile, because there aren't really any other avenues to try to roll back progress that we've made around LGBTQ issues. And keep in mind, you know, you said you can't really put the genie back in the bottle. We also live in a time where information is freely available. You have young children using iPads and iPhones. The internet is widely available to virtually everyone. Uh, and so this idea that, you know, erasing story about a trans kid, there's a book called Call Me Max, and ripping that book off of the shelves of elementary or middle schools across the country is suddenly going to stop people from being trans because they won't see trans people anymore is fundamentally absurd because trans people are visible all over the place, right? Anytime mm -hmm. you, you know, you look online or you, you know, you're on social media, you see a variety of different people living in this world. You see that the world is not just the little box that you live in, but rather that it is a broad swath of diversity that includes different genders, different sexual orientations, different races, ethnicities. And that is what makes us beautiful as a human race. So I think to your point, you're right. There is no putting that genie back in the bottle, no matter how much you dredge up uh, the oldest bigoted tropes in the book. However, the fear is that they will try. I mean, it seems to me They'll that try. they will try. And if this is the first step is by, you know, talking about preschools, that's the first test of a wedge issue that you know will grow in the same way that they've done before, I mean, this is not the first time gay rights has been used as a wedge issue. I don't remember the year, but certainly Bush used it once quite successfully. Yeah, 2004. Yeah. <laughs> I was a sophomore in high school. I yeah. remember it well. I mean, it was a big year for them and they needed to win and that's what they used. They couldn't win any other way. And maybe that's what the GOP sort of figured out is they needed to create all these side social issues that will inflame reaction in schools, particularly. Um, certainly that's what the feel has been for the last year. They've been targeting school boards. They've been targeting school education in terms of race. Now they're targeting school education in terms of 
of LGBTQ rights. And it's almost like there's no safe zone anymore. You can't escape politics even in schools, which used yeah. to, you know, we used to protect our kids from this kind of stuff. And now just let our entire school system become a political playground. Yeah, it's really unfortunate because folks who support this bill talk about, we just want teachers to teach math and science and reading. Uh, and teachers would love to be able to just focus on teaching if politicians would get out of the way. This sort of you know, politicizing of every area of life is, you know, in my mind, sort of a metastasizing of the Donald Trump effect that Mm -hmm. instead of running on actual policy proposals, instead of trying to make life better for their constituents or do the jobs that they've been elected to do, these politicians are obsessed with trending on Twitter, with seeing their names on a Fox Chiron somewhere, with climbing the political ladder to their next destination. And leading the charge is Governor Ron DeSantis, who is addicted to the idea of running for president someday. There are real problems that Floridians are facing right now. Miami was just ranked, I think it surpassed New York City for the first time, the least affordable city in the United States. Rent is up 30, 40, 50% in some parts of South and Central Florida. We have a property insurance crisis in this state where nobody can get homeowners insurance because people won't insure them. And so DeSantis has a real opportunity to solve problems, right, and make life better for Floridians, but unfortunately for his right-wing base, as he thinks about trying to outrace Donald Trump to the nomination, mm. that doesn't play well. What plays well is this sort of you know, fear-mongering and whipping up of a frenzy of culture war issues. And so he served us up a buffet of them, not just Don't Say Gay, but a 15-week abortion ban, an anti-CRT bill called the Stop Woke Act. Uh, there's a whole host of things, anti-immigrant bills, He just vetoed the congressional maps in Florida because he wants to get rid of two majority black voting districts. I mean, he's going after all of it, and it's in an effort to build him this resume to run for president, not to do the job that we elected him to do. Oh, 100%. It's designed to basically co-opt that Trump base, but do it in a much more, frankly, sophisticated way that Donald Trump did. And that's the difficult part with, you know, Donald Trump was such a buffoon that it was easy to to pick the weak spots. Uh, DeSantis is he's far more sophisticated in his nuance. I guess they're nuanced. Maybe they're not nuanced. Um, <laughs> descriptions of, of how When compared to Donald yeah, Trump, maybe yes. nuanced. <laughs> Relatively nuanced, yes. You know what's interesting about Donald Trump and about Putin? In, back in uh, 2017, and I'll just put up this. In 2017, I wrote an article for a narrative blog about what Putin was doing with the LGBT community in the United States ahead of the Trump elections. So... It is called Divide and Conquer. And basically, uh, Mm. I'll read you the first part here. Beyond Facebook, Russia colluded with U.S. anti-gay groups to stoke tensions over LGBTQ equality in the run-up to the 2016 elections. This is a quote from Vladimir Putin. God has decided, Putin told Oliver Stone in Showtime's Putin's interview, I believe it's my duty to uphold traditional values and family values. But why? Because the same-sex marriages will not produce any children. That's the Russian president said. That's his excuse, at least. It's not illegal to be gay in Russia, but it's a crime to wave a pride flag, show same-sex public displays of affection, or demonstrate for gay rights. Gay Russians in Chechnya are routinely rounded up and tortured, and vigilante gangs use social media to lure hundreds of gay men on fake dates where they are filmed being beaten or sexually humiliated. Everything from same-sex emoji bans to a total prohibition on coming out publicly has been considered by the Russian legislature. And in fact, this whole don't say gay bill at school, it has its origins in what Russia uh, first passed many years ago. Do you, do you know much about Putin's influence in this realm? 
I'm not read on Putin's influence on American LGBTQ issues. I can say I think it's pretty clear that Putin's fingerprints are all over a lot of the very divisive issues that our country faces right now as he you know, worked really hard to get Donald Trump elected president. But I will note that the last thing you mentioned, that in 2013, Vladimir Putin signed his own Don't Say Gay law in Russia that they call the Gay Propaganda Law. It sort of birthed from the same insinuation that LGBTQ people are contagious, and the only way to stop our contagion from spreading is to erase us from society. And so Putin used that same sort of rhetoric about us being a threat to children to justify passing a very overtly anti-LGBTQ piece of legislation, signing it into law that essentially outlaws conversations and materials about LGBTQ people. Florida's Don't Say Gay Law is not that far from the 2013 Russian version. And much of the rhetoric that's being used by Governor Ron DeSantis is the same rhetoric that was used by the Russian far right at that time and is still used by the Russian far right today to justify discrimination and violence against LGBTQ people. So these things are not unique to Florida. They're not unique to the United States. And what's unfortunate is that they have very anti-democratic authoritarian roots that grow and spread beyond that reach, you know, people of color that begin to reach the bodies of women and those who can have children and ultimately end in authoritarian control by the government of virtually every aspect of people's lives. So it won't surprise you then when I tell you that the main reason that it came to the United States, the main reason that we have sort of this, the same kind of bill here and the same kind of rhetoric is because the Putin under this uh, oligarch that I mentioned earlier in the show, Konstantin Milofiev, created something called the anti, well, they called it the World Congress of Families. Of course, it's an anti-gay movement. And it was headquartered in the United States. And Milofiev was basically a key financier of this thing. And it started... Um, I guess in 2013, that they started moving people in terms of visits, in terms of delegations going from uh, Russia to the United States and vice versa. And they've built this whole platform around the world of, you know, a focus on the families, Congress of families, all this kind of idea that they're pro-family, but really the subtext of it is that they're anti-gay. And a lot of the attempts to try and ignite a sort of a, a furor around the LGBTQ issues in 2016 revolved around this movement getting Trump elected. And this is one of the pillars. We know about the other ones. We know about Black Lives Matter. We know about all these others. But so was the World Congress of Families. And I find that really interesting, particularly because at around the same time as all this was happening in 2016 is when you and all of us were confronted, but you personally were confronted by this shocking event at uh, the Pulse nightclub. And I can't believe it's only 2016. It feels a lot longer ago because we've all been through so much. But it also feels... We survived the Trump presidency. Yeah, we did yeah. survive the Trump presidency. It's been a hell of a time. However, you know, it seems that this whole don't say gay bill so soon after the Pulse nightclub shooting, it seems to me, you know, it's just so bigoted and wrongheaded and so unaware of recent events that have happened in just the recent history of the U.S. and particularly Florida. Can you take us back to that time? I mean, are you able to, if it's not too triggering at all, can you take us back to what your thoughts were, you know, six years ago as you were there and just describe what happened on that day? Yeah, well, listen, I think it's important for you to know how normal June 11th of 2016 really was. It was a Saturday. It was laundry day, which meant I was, you know, folding socks and underwear on the couch. My best friends, Drew and Juan, who had become my chosen family when I spent time, you know, I ran away from home basically midway through college and set up shop in Orlando. 
And Drew, who you see on the screen now, sort of saved me. He was the older brother that I needed at that time. He taught me to love myself. He taught me to be compassionate to others. He taught me to be proud of who I was. And so, you know, as this June 11th of 2016 day wound to a close, I did the most normal thing. I texted Drew and his partner Juan and asked them to go and get a drink with me. Uh, they got to my apartment just before midnight, which was a little late for us. We listened to the same soundtrack we always listened to. We watched the same music videos to get us in the mood to go out that we always listened to. We made the same drinks we always made. And when it came time to decide where to go, we just picked a club that we were very familiar with. Pulse Nightclub is one of the first places I held hands with someone I had a crush on without looking over my shoulder first. Pulse is one of the first places where I wore my skinniest pair of jeans without fearing that someone might call me a homophobic slur or worse. Pulse was a safe space for LGBTQ people and specifically for queer people of color like myself. We got there and the line was as long as it always was. The same sort of angry drag queen was there at the front desk to take my $5. We went to the same bartender we always went to, ordered the same drinks we always ordered. Drew had a master's degree in clinical psychology. And so when he had a drink or two of his cocktail, he would give you a free therapy session, whether you wanted one or not. And so we went out to our usual spot on the patio. He, he talked about how much he cared for all of us, how much he wished that people stopped letting the small things get in the way of one another. And he draped his long arm around my shoulder. And he said, you know what I wish we did more of is tell each other that we love each other. It was just a few minutes later that the most normal night of my life became extraordinary. It was just before two o'clock that I stepped into the bathroom. We decided we were not 19 years old and we didn't need to be closing a club anymore. And so I was just going to use a restroom and we would call an Uber and go home. Uh, I remember the same urinal that I'd stood in front of so many times before, the same poster on the wall with the same painted drag queen's faces on it. I remember there was a plastic cup on the edge of the sink looking like it might fall off. And I remember how cold the water was from the faucet that night. I remember the first sound of gunshots that rang out in the club, this feeling of fear and panic, the hair standing up on the back of my neck. I remember the smell of blood and smoke that filled the room, this locking arms with a dozen people that I'd never met before and making a break for an exit. I remember telling myself not to look left into the dance floor of the club because I knew that I'd never forget what I saw in there. And I remember midway through the room, the fog sort of swirling at my feet, wishing that I'd gotten an opportunity to say goodbye to my parents because I just figured that I would die in there. And I do remember a feeling of relief when the door flung open and, and I was standing in the parking lot. There was this gunfire raging in the background and people screaming for help, but there was a feeling of relief because I'd made it out. And I also remember how fleeting that was when the realization hit me that my best friends, Drew and Juan, my brothers, the people I love more than anyone, were standing exactly where they always were, wrapped in each other's arms underneath the disco ball, which was right in the line of fire of that man and his assault weapon. Wow. You know, people don't maybe appreciate how you can find your chosen family in an LGBTQ community that is just like your family. They become so close to you. And it seems to me that you know, Drew and Juan was, were those people to you. They were your chosen family. And yeah. so to, to have them ripped away in a safe place like the Pulse nightclub, you know, another thing that people probably don't realize is the safe places that we need to find as gay people because there aren't so many safe places in the world. And so to have all of that happen in one place is such a violation, you know, of your youth at a time like that, that it seems, you know, intentionally designed to terrorize a specific kind of 
obviously designed to terrorize gay people, but also designed for a political purpose. It seems to me like the whole thing was so particularly vicious and so particularly hateful that it almost supersedes any other kind of terrorist attack that we've seen in the U.S. because of its nature of who chose to target. You know, for me, it was a stark reminder of some of the things that you've mentioned, which is how important safe spaces are for LGBTQ people. It was a reminder of how critical chosen family really is. The truth is that safe space as a term has largely been perverted by, you know, online trolls. And it's sort of a bludgeon against people that if you need a safe space, you're not tough enough to handle the world as it is. But for queer people, safe spaces are lifelines. They're the places that we carve out to be able to be ourselves without fearing discrimination and violence. When I was a kid, school was not a safe place. Mm -hmm. Uh, Church was not a safe place for me. Home was not always a safe place for me. The safe places that I had were the ones that I carved out with my friends. And when I moved to Orlando, I really discovered that chosen family is a safe place too. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're the people who love you unconditionally. Maybe the first people I met Uh, in my adult life that loved me without condition. And for so many queer people, those are the things that make the difference between making it to tomorrow or not. Mm -hmm. Drew and Juan were some of the best people I ever met. They were the social glue that held people together. They were chosen family for a lot of people. And to have them and 47 others ripped away so violently was a reminder of what we're up against. And for me, it's a reminder that rings really true right now because We're talking about rhetoric coming from the governor's office in the third largest state in the union that produces the kind of conditions that create violence against LGBTQ people. And I'm not saying that to be hyperbolic or alarmist. I'm saying it because when you so dehumanize LGBTQ people, when you just conflate our existence with something scandalous or sexual in nature, you give people eventually license to take actions against us that they would not otherwise feel empowered to take. And so I am, you know, every day thinking about the safety and the lives and the well-being of LGBTQ young people who are not unlike myself that went to Pulse nightclub on June 11th of 2016 and came home on June 12th without the two people that I love more than anything in the world. And I find the rhetoric right now not just to be grotesque and vile on its surface, but also distinctly dangerous, because I've seen the other side of what happens when we fuel hate and hand it a weapon. Mm -hmm. This idea that the don't say gay bills are pro-family are in fact exactly the opposite. They rip families apart. When you take away schools which have tried to become safer places for LGBTQ youth, and you take away the environment where they can feel safe and comfortable talking about their two dads or two moms, and you're breeding a sense of homophobia that's going to, you know, tear these families apart at the end of the day. Because the more you ostracize gay people in society, the more families don't want to have, you know, a gay kid or whatever. And then they might choose to reject that child. Where The opposite is true if you include them. So these don't say gay bills are not anything that are pro-family at all. They're actually the exact opposite and destructive to the family units. And then what that leads people to is, as you point out, a lot of other really negative things with whether it's suicide or mental health issues or addiction issues. They're all, you know, ultimately come from that family unit being shattered at the end of the day by homophobia. And That's right. the mental health challenges that people are facing going forward in a society that has reintroduced these don't say gay bills or stuff like that are tremendous. I mean, they really are going to damage kids going forward in every way. 
um, for generations to come. So this is not just like a fleeting, oh, let's have a, you know, a populist bill that might get DeSantis elected. This is a fundamentally challenging piece of legislation that could damage families and children in our society for decades to come. Yeah, you're right. And we know that's happening because young people are telling us that. The Trevor Project did a poll recently that said 66% of LGBTQ young people and 85% of transgender and non-binary young people specifically have said that their mental health has been negatively impacted by these bills and these policy discussions. And let's drill down further into what you're talking about with mental health outcomes. These are young people that are particularly vulnerable. These are young people that already face higher rates of depression, of anxiety, of discrimination, of bullying, of sexual violence. These are young people, LGBTQ young people, based on data we have from the CDC, are four times as likely as their peers to attempt suicide before they graduate high school. And they're not doing that simply because they're LGBTQ. They're doing it because they face family rejection because they can't find a place to belong, because they're told that there's something wrong with them or that they're other simply because of who they are. The way we combat that is by creating an environment that tells kids they are perfect exactly as they are, that tells young people that families come in all shapes and sizes, that they might look different from yours, but that all of them are worthy. All of them are of value. We help those young people by creating affirming and diverse societies, not by censoring conversations about people not by erasing people, not by ripping books about people off of shelves. And it's easy for us to get lost in those numbers as just statistics, that they're four times as likely as this, that it's 66% of that. These are not just statistics. These are kids we're talking about. These are children who go to school and feel ostracized because they don't see themselves reflected. Maybe they're bullied in the hallways. These are kids who go to church and hear from a a pulpit, maybe, that there's something wrong with them simply because of who they are. These are kids that then go home and may face family rejection, may, may be worried that their families will find out who they are and ultimately decide that it's easier to take their own lives than to live to see tomorrow. The fact that those numbers are so staggeringly high among this population of young people is what these politicians should be focused on. Mm -hmm. If they care about families, if they care about protecting children, then they would be doing everything in their power to create an environment that uplifts the most vulnerable population of young people that we have, not an environment that's demonizing them for political gain. Absolutely. Well said. That's a, you know, it really is a public health threat, what this bill entails. And it's something that parents should take very seriously because, you know, we think about it, every family has a gay person in it. You know, probably extended family has a gay person in it. There's not a person in America who doesn't know a gay person as a friend or a family member. You know, do you really want that family member to be suffering in the same way that generations of gay people have suffered before we had these, the LGBTQ rights? I mean, we've had you know, incredible movement in liberalizing our, our society towards acceptance. And it's been well accepted. Like, it's not like there's been, you know, people have been fighting in the streets or rioting because of gay people. They've sort of accepted the fact that the LGBTQ people should get married or could be able to get married or adopt all these other fundamental rights. There's been nothing, you know, to suggest that it's been rejected by society. And yet here comes this legislation, which seems intent on reigniting and redividing America which is not what America is about and not at all what we've been striving for for generations to do. 
It's unfortunate. And of course, it's extremely damaging. Uh, you mentioned all the progress that we've made. And and listen, I'm, I'm not naive, and I don't think people in our movement are. It's not as if we won marriage equality and adoption rights and all opponents to equality like shook our hands and said, good game and moved yeah. on to the next fight. Right. They went back to their war rooms and they started to craft policy proposals that would begin to chip away at those things. And I do want to say, you know, really clearly for those listening, that they did it by picking a boogeyman in the transgender community, that this is largely aimed at trans and non-binary people, that there's an understanding that the gateway to peeling back civil liberties for people across the board is to find a boogeyman and essentially, you know, use them as a political lightning rod. They did it with trans people when it was about bathrooms. And they, you know, thought they found a foothold there. They've done it with trans people as they've talked about young people on sports teams. They're not having a good faith conversation about what athletic participation should look like. They're having a conversation from behind a bully pulpit trying to dehumanize and misgender people in order to mischaracterize an entire community to use them as a foothold to go and climb to the next rung of the ladder. And so it's no mistake that as we're having these conversations about the don't say gay bill, now the don't say gay law, that they have centered on the transgender community, that much of the conversation has been a suggestion that the presence of a trans person is threatening to children, that children are going to suddenly come out as transgender, that they're going to try on, quote, a new identity, as the senator in Florida said, because they saw a trans person in a book or in a movie, or they heard someone identify as transgender. So I do think it's important for us to call out that not only are they the political lightning rod in this moment, but they're also the most vulnerable among us. Black trans women continue to be murdered at far higher rates than everyone else in society. Florida has led the country in the murders of black trans women several years in a row. These things are very closely connected, and it's incumbent upon all of us to make the decision today that we are going to refuse to see a society, a culture, a country that leaves anyone behind in striving for progress for some. We're not going to have an LGBTQ civil rights movement and leave transgender people behind anymore. We're not going to have a civil rights movement in general and leave black folks behind anymore or leave immigrants behind anymore or leave women behind anymore. These folks who are desperately trying to cling to power authoritarian control over people's bodies, the kind of control that upholds the status quo in our society, are desperate to divide us and hope that we don't find solidarity to push back against them. It's incumbent upon us to find that solidarity to push back firmly. You're so right. And then, of course, the what they are trying to do is establish a sort of a Christian theocracy government here where, you know, all these rights that we've become accustomed to, whether it's our voting rights or women's rights or LGBTQ rights, all these rights disappear because, you know, will be the only way they can do that. The only way they can figure out a way to maintain power is to create some sort of Christian nationalism here, which is exactly what Vladimir Putin is doing in Russia and exactly what uh, Hungary, what's the guy's name? Blanking out. Orban. Uh, thank you. <laughs> Just, yeah. just got reelected. That happens. Uh, age, age <laughs> will take your memory away. <laughs> so, you know, there's just so much uh, at stake in this. This is not just one piece of legislation. It's not just the Don't Say Gay Bill. It's not just all these smaller efforts in different states. It's a national effort to turn America into a Christian national state, which will not look anything like we have today. It will basically be an autocracy. It's so fundamentally damaging to our society. I want to take you back to Drew because I, 
you know, it's really heartbreaking hearing you talk about Drew. And it's, you know, I think we've all, you know, any, any person in the gay community has probably had a Drew in their lives. And you've been able to turn that into a real mission for yourself. And through the Drew Project and through others' efforts, you've become a real spokesperson. How did you find the strength to do that? And I'll tell you, that was such an incredible loss with such a difficult situation. How were you able to turn that around? Well, the truth is that Drew gave that to me. Drew taught me a lot of things. On our first meeting, our first meeting was actually a blind date. Well, kind of a half blind date, uh, because like any good millennial, I had Instagram stalked him and like picked out names for our <laughs> kids and stuff like that. I was convinced he was my future husband. So when I found a mutual friend who was willing to set us up, I, I took advantage of that. We went on a, a dinner date and he immediately, as soon as I sat down, said, I have a question for you. And I thought, well, okay, you know, small talk, I can do this. And he said, what are your thoughts on the for-profit healthcare industry in America and its impact on consumers? And I was floored. I thought he was going to ask me my favorite color, maybe to start. But it turned into a, a night-long conversation about the things that we believed and, and why we believed them. And I tell that story because that's who he was. He was so unashamed of how he felt and how passionate he was about things in the world. He was unafraid of asking tough questions and challenging you to be the best version of yourself. And so, you know, when we got the news that he hadn't made it off the dance floor, I wish that I could tell you that that was the moment that I felt galvanized to go out and share my story and advocate for our community, but it wasn't. I crawled back into bed, I put a bottle of whiskey next to my pillow, and I wondered if maybe drinking myself to death would be easier than facing the loss of the person who had taught me so much about moving through this world as a genuine human being. But then six days after the shooting, we had a funeral service for him. And his mom was so gracious. She asked me to be a pallbearer that day. And so as I was pushing his casket down the aisle, I found myself sort of grabbing the side so tightly that you know my knuckles were turning white. It's because I, I didn't want to let go of my best friend until I'd found the right words to say goodbye to him. When we got to the front of the church, I looked down at the casket and I made a promise. I whispered it just for him. And I said, I will never stop fighting for a world that you would be proud of. And at the time, it felt really small, like maybe that's one policy win or, or one little thing I can do in my community. But as time has gone on, I understand that that's not only a really big promise, but it's also a promise that applies to all of us, that a world that Drew would be proud of is a world that all of us can be proud of. It's a world that everyone can live in without fear of discrimination or violence, where they can be themselves the same way that Drew allowed me to be on our very first hangout. I call it a date today, but he'd probably call it a hangout. That's a world that we all deserve. And it's a world certainly that LGBTQ young people deserve. And so when the going gets tough, when the governor's spokeswoman is out on Twitter calling everybody left and right a pedophile, I think about the promise that I made to Drew and what that requires of me, the courage that it requires, the strength that it requires. And I think about the courage and strength that Drew would have if he were still here to be doing the same thing. Wow. You really are an inspiration. What an incredible story. Oh, uh, how you. can people help you? How, how can people join your efforts here to fight this law, but also just to maintain a real uh, presence of the LGBTQ rights in general? Yeah, thank you. So I'm going to encourage people to do two things, to visit two websites. The first is freetosaygay.org. That's freetosaygay.org. And you can learn more about the Don't Say Gay law. We've got a, an explainer on there. My boss made me get on TikTok, so I apologize if I'm not an expert at it. But I tried to do a quick TikTok explainer of some of the things we've talked about today. Yeah. Uh, you can 
figure out there how to you know get involved, donate, share your story with us. If you've got a story that you want us to elevate, that's a really great way for people to get involved. You can also check out the Drew Project, the drewproject.org. It's D-R-U Project. That is the organization that we founded in honor of my best friend. We asked ourselves, what would a legacy look like if he left one behind? And it was obvious to us that we would just do what he would be doing if he was still here. And so to date, we've given over $100,000 in college funding to LGBTQ young people. Uh, We've given out over $15,000 in grant funding to Gay Street Alliance clubs at schools across the country. And so if you want to help us continue to do that work to lift up queer young people, you can go to thedrewproject.org. And then finally, our work right now is not only to fight back against policy, but to work really hard for the hearts and minds of the American people. Um, We've made an incredible amount of progress, whether it's on marriage equality, adoption rights, non-discrimination protections, or just building a world that affirms LGBTQ people as we are. But just because we did that work doesn't mean we can take it for granted now all the things that we've fought for. Our work is to have tough conversations, to push back against the kind of homophobic and transphobic rhetoric that right-wing politicians are using right now. Our work is to have tough conversations with people who may not understand these issues, to ask tough questions when we don't understand it. If you find yourself saying, well, I get most of the LGB spectrum, but I just don't understand trans people, that's a spot you've got to interrogate. It means you haven't met a trans person yet who's changed your life, and your challenge is to go out and find them and get to know them better. Everyone is challenged to do that. Even if you can't pitch in five bucks today to an organization of your choice, you can have tough conversations and ask tough questions to expand your knowledge and continue to push for that progress. We can make a world that Drew would be proud of. It's a world that all of us can be proud of, but we can't do it by accident. We have to work for it. Absolutely. Well said. I think the entire uh, platform of the GOP these days is about division and about creating others in our society, which don't really exist. I mean, Sure, there are a lot of people who are biased against one thing or another, but not to the extent that we've seen over the last few years and whether it's these uh, sort of events that happen, which may be organized or not, that, you know, either create conflict or or attempt to ignite uh, differences between different people. They're all just, you know, manufactured gaslighting of our society. And the whole point behind the GOP's strategy is to divide us as much as possible. So any efforts where people can, you know, see meet people like you or meet any other gay people, you know, they're not so scary after all. You know, when you go into... Uh, you go to any of those nightclubs, you'll find them fairly fun place to be. Or they'll people will be happy. They probably be <laughs> we less welcome fighting. you anytime. Yeah. I'll be at Southern Nights, I'm sure, <laughs> in the next week here in Orlando. I'd love to meet folks. Yeah, so you know, it'll be a really good thing for people to try and, and do that because you know your kids aren't even if they aren't going to be. You know, if your kids do land up being gay, it's not the end of the world. It really isn't. Um, it turns out to be quite a quite a joyous thing for for gay people and also a real sense of identity and family and belonging, which they you know otherwise not have. So, um, Brandon, I want to thank you so much for being here tonight. I could talk to you for a long time because I really want to hear the rest of your story. But I'm kind of I'm kind of stunned that no one was ever convicted. Is that right of the Pulse shooting? Nothing. No one was ever convicted for that. Yeah. So, um, you know, the man who committed that atrocity was killed that night in a police firefight. And so for many in the community, it it has never really felt like justice because there wasn't a trial. There wasn't a moment where someone is held accountable for their actions. You know, I think maybe that's why I've sort of hitched my future and my vision onto creating a better world to try to stop things from like Pulse from happening in the first place. Because for me, that's what justice looks like. 
one man dying in a firefight like a coward doesn't look like justice to me. And honestly, I don't know that someone going to jail would look like justice for me either. Mm. What looks like justice is a world where things like Pulse don't happen anymore because we have sensible gun safety legislation. We could talk about that on another episode. Sure. Uh, and of course, we have a world where people are accepted and affirmed for who they are, where hate violence is is snuffed out. I know that's a big dream and certainly probably won't happen in my lifetime, but I think that's worth fighting for. And it's certainly that's what justice looks like to me. Absolutely. Uh, Brandon Wolf, thank you so much for being here tonight. Tell everyone how they can find you online, tell your Twitter account, and then also whatever else you want to, you want to send them to. Yeah, thank you. My Twitter account is at Wolf. That's B-J-O-E-W-O-L-F. Uh, so find me there. I'm most active on Twitter. I want to engage with you all. And then, of course, I'm on Instagram as well. I'm at Brandon J. Wolf. I'd love to connect with you there, although you may get more like poolside or vacation photos <laughs> if you're into that. Uh, that's a little bit more of a personal look into my life. But looking forward to staying engaged. There's so much more conversation to have. Uh, certainly, Florida's Don't Say Gay Law is, is just the one of many. Uh, that we're witnessing right now. And it's not the end of the fight, especially as we look toward DeSantis's re-election cycle in November. And then as he starts to try to build himself toward a national platform in 2024. Absolutely. People really need to get uh, active in the fight for democracy and the fight for these rights and uh, no time to do it like the present. So get involved wherever you can. That's the show for tonight, everybody. Thank you for being here, Brandon Wolf. And also thank you to our audience for helping us do narrative programs by supporting us at patreon.com forward slash narrative. That's patreon.com forward slash narrative. We really appreciate all your support. Have a good night, everybody. Narrative is made possible by viewers like you. Join today and support truly independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative. That's patreon.com forward slash narrative.